As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20 minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our book at howtobuildarocketship.com to reserve your launch discount and to download a free chapter. In today's episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast, Brad Flora, founder and CEO of Perfect Audience, talks all about the recent acquisition of his company. He shares the ups and downs of the entire process and the unexpected points along the way, including things that have changed post-sale. We'd like to take a moment to thank our awesome sponsors. CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple and easy. Go to CodeShip.com slash RocketShip to get 20% off three months. We'd also like to thank InVisionApp. 
Envision is by far the best prototyping and collaboration tool on the market. Go to Envision app forward slash rocket ship to get the starter plan free for 90 days. Customer.io is a modern email platform built for startups. Go to customer.io slash rocket ship to start sending emails that convert. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. We're here with Brad Flora, the founder of Perfect Audience. Brad, welcome. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So give us uh, the quick pitch for Perfect Audience. Perfect Audience is the fastest and easiest way for businesses to retarget their lost website visitors so they can get more conversions and sales. Uh, it's, a self, it's a self-service retargeting platform. Very cool. Yeah. And retargeting is a, is a rather new industry, right? Within the past year, this has kind of flourished? Sure. Well, it's been around for some time. Google had a product way back, or excuse me, DoubleClick had a product way back in 2006 called Boomerang that was basically retargeting. Uh, but it really hasn't gone mainstream until the last two years or so. And, and now it's something that everybody's doing, just like email marketing. Mm. So where did you find this problem and, and how did you kind of come up with the idea for it? Sure. So uh, I started our company actually to build uh, software that would help online publishers like newspapers um, easily create interactive digital ads. So our first product uh, of our company was actually like a creative builder. And um, I spent a year from like 2010 to 2011 uh, trying to pitch that to newspapers with some success. And then I went into Y Combinator with that product and was able to raise a seed round because we had a bunch of newspapers of scale signed up with us. But while we were there, we were a little discouraged by the fact that none of the other companies in our batch had any interest in using our product. Hmm. And we just thought we kept thinking about that as kind of a, a negative indicator if uh, you know, a really hot, ambitious startup can't find value in a business-to-business tool that you're building. Hmm. And so we started talking to other startups, other companies in our batch, other customers, advertisers that we were running into about, you know, what are you spending money on and what are the things that you're excited about? And retargeting kept coming up over and over and over again. And so uh, about six months after we came out of YC, uh, we'd had enough difficulty working with these crazy newspapers on this first product that we decided to kind of tear all that up and, and build Perfect Audience, a really easy retargeting platform that uh, our peers and all these other advertisers we'd met could benefit from. Yeah, actually, one of the things I love about how you um, built it is that you made something that maybe a lot of people didn't understand. Um, you made it accessible and easy to understand. Um, before using Perfect Audience, I had never done any retargeting before, and uh, we use it for HookFeed. It's actually the only advertising we do is, is through Perfect Audience for HookFeed. Um, and I love the like webinar setup that you guys had and all the onboarding. Um, it was it took something that I had never done or really thought much about, and within an hour or two, I was up and running with with ads and everything. Well, that's great. We, we put a lot of time into it, and, and you know that came down to some advice we got from some of the White Combinator partners, which was, "Hey, this is a new a new Earth thing. If you can be the people that introduce this concept to folks and help them be successful with it, that's creating a lot of value. And if you can just stack up all that value, you'll be doing a good job." So, what other things did you do to educate um, people on retargeting and um, grow your audience so rapidly? Well, the first thing we did was we really put a lot of emphasis on documentation early on. 
on day one when we launched uh, the product, which I think was like October 5th or something like that, we made sure we had a really long FAQ. <laughs> and that was basically our documentation. But I don't know, it was something like 30 questions and it was very detailed. And the other thing that we did was we tried to kind of interlace documentation throughout the app. We wanted the app to be at least somewhat self-documenting so that the process of using it would feel a little bit like a conversation with someone that was helping you learn stuff. Um, we made use of tools like Intercom uh, to help communicate with our users. We were a very early user of theirs and saw a lot of success there. Um, and, then, um, and, and then we intentionally hired someone uh, to just make videos and run webinars uh, for folks to help explain all this. So that, that, that was just a big emphasis of ours from day one. And part of that is in keeping with, you know, when you have a self-service tool, um, you've got to have the materials there to help people be successful with it or else you're, you're not really following through on the value proposition of your business. So is that something that was drilled into you guys during Y Combinator, or did you know from the beginning that you would, have, uh, you would struggle with educating people because it was a relatively new tactic? Well, I would just say that when you have a startup and, and the, the core of Perfect Audience is really just four people in an apartment in Mountain View, that, that was we built the app together, we launched the thing. we didn't hire a fifth person for I don't know something like six months after we launched. Um, and it was really the four of us that made all this, and we just had to look at our strengths and what we could do. and we knew that the two developers could build a great self-service experience. Uh, we knew that the, the other guy could uh, uh, Tony, our director of customer success, could could help customers be successful and be great with them on the phone and answering their questions. And that left me, and I was an English major, so I thought, well, I, I can make stories and, and explain things to people pretty well. I've got a journalism background, so we just started cranking out documentation to make sure that nobody could fault us on that front. Well, I'll say whatever you did worked, uh, because the latest news with you guys is that you were recently acquired. Thank you. We so, were, yes. Very exciting. Yeah, that's extremely exciting. Um, and I was hoping to actually talk a little bit about that today as well. Um, we haven't had a discussion like that on the show before, and I think there's a lot to be learned about um, what an acquisition looks like and even why you, you choose to do it at, at certain time periods. Um, I'd love to know a little bit of the backstory of, like, you know, if you were seeking the acquisition heavily or if it kind of came in your lap or, or what happened there. Sure. So at a kind of a macro level, we launched Perfect Audience in October of 2012, and that winter was spent um, just sweating it out, worrying about, is this going to work? Are we going to get enough customers over the holidays to, to build a real business? Um, we'd spent a lot of our investment money on the first product, and, and we spent a lot of it just funding uh, 2012, the, the process of us building Perfect Audience. So the winter was lean times. And then 2013 was spent building out, once we saw that people liked the product and there was actually going to be an opportunity there, um, it, it was spent hiring. And, and how do we find 10 more people to join our team as we grow? And they need to be the right people at the right time to solve the problems that we're facing and also the ones that we're going to be facing. And uh, we had a lot of technology we needed to build that year in 2013. We had a lot of decisions we needed to make about how we were going to work with customers and what we were going to do for them and what we weren't going to do for them. And at, near the end of 2013, we felt like we'd actually figured out a lot of that stuff. Um, our revenue was growing in double digits month over month. 
Uh, we had just hired someone away from Google to manage our agency relationships. Um, we had this eight-person engineering team that was cranking out code very swiftly and really getting along together. Uh, it was a really great feeling, very fulfilling to kind of get to that point. And around that time in November of 2011, one of our customers, Marin Software, which is a, a big publicly traded company that manage, helps uh, large brands manage their Google, uh, Facebook, and, and display advertising, um, approached us. They'd been very happy with the experience of using Perfect Audience, and they had decided that they wanted to get into the display game in a more substantial way than they had. And so, you know, it all began with an email uh, sent over in, I think, mid-November uh, saying, hey, we'd love to do a phone call. And uh, we knew them as a customer, and we talked to them at some trade shows. Uh, and so we did a quick call, and they, they just wanted to confirm some facts about our platform. Uh, and then, you know, they invited, uh, they invited us in to do a demo. Um, and my co-founder was actually back in Chicago visiting family. So I went by myself, and he phoned in. And when you do a demo for... A customer or a company, you know, you expect two or three people to be there. And instead, they ushered me into the main meeting room at Marin, and there were, I don't know, 20 people there, um, you know, and very high execs in the company. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And uh, we had a two hour discussion, there was a demo, and then they had lots of questions. And uh, that was kind of how it started. Um, you know, apparently that went well, and they invited me back for a follow on conversation with the CEO. Uh, about a week after Thanksgiving, and they said they were interested in talking about an acquisition. And uh, we said, well, we're not looking to sell right now. We have no need to sell. We're profitable. We're growing. We have this awesome team. We're really happy. We're independent. We don't really owe anybody anything. Um, but we're a startup, so we'll hear what you have to say. And that's kind of how it began. So did you know going into that big meeting that this was something more than a product demo? Well, um, I have been in this situation multiple times throughout, let's say, 2012 and 2013. You know, it, big companies employ people known as corporate development people, and their whole job is basically to send emails to startups and, and people like that and invite them in and, and have them do a demo, and then they sit back and use that information and make decisions and maybe pursue an acquisition. And okay. it's usually almost always a huge waste of time, just a massive, epic waste of time. And so, you know, to, to all those startup folks out there listening, if you get an email from a corp dev person, it's time to put on the skepticism hat immediately because <laughs> okay. uh, they they get paid to waste your time and you don't get any of that money that they get paid. Um, so uh, when when we got reached out to by someone in corp, you know, when you get, we got the email, and of course I go to LinkedIn, you got to look the person up, oh, corporate development, uh-oh. So, <laughs> but you know, my policy was I'll do one meeting um, or one call and, uh, and, and take it from there. But you kind of have to have a, you have to be intentional about it. You know, if, you, if you're not, if you don't kind of have some rules of the engagement laid out mentally beforehand, it can just waste a lot of your time. So I went into that call thinking, I'm just doing a call, that's it. Um, but the call was kind of intriguing, so they asked me for the demo, and I said, okay, it's just going to be this demo, and then that's it. And then the demo, like I said, was very unusual. So once you kind of figured out that they were really serious about acquiring you, um, 
Did you have any pressure from your investors to start shopping around to other companies um, to see if you could drive the price up? Uh, of course. I wouldn't even call it pressure. That's just the smart thing to do. So, um, you know, once we knew that there may be a, a market for our business, um, we started thinking, might there be other people that are interested? And so throughout the winter of 2013 into 2014, uh, some of our investors were making introductions, and, and I was, you know, while having few, uh, ongoing discussions with the kind folks at Marin, I was also taking meetings with all sorts of companies. And, you know, a lot of the usual players that make acquisitions in the startup world, uh, and also companies that maybe are a little bit less known but are prominent in the ad space. So absolutely, um, that, was a, that was a big part of my job as the CEO and co-founder of the company was to take meetings like that. So what was it like approaching your staff and saying, we have just sold? So um, that was, uh, you know, we waited until basically the deal was about to close before we told, you know, the team. Okay. So it was very late in the process. Um, we felt that as, as close as we were, just the more people you tell about anything, the, the more likely it is to get out. And once it gets out, bad things happen. You know, I read my tech crunch. Anytime you read about a leaked deal like that that's in negotiations, nobody's happy about that. Okay. And so, um, so we told people really late, you know, we were basically just about to close on the deal. Um, uh, but also, we, need, we had to tell them before we closed the deal, because unlike a lot of startups, we didn't give options to our employees. We gave them actual shares. So they were shareholders with all the normal shareholder rights that I had or my co-founder had. So they and could have so voted to block it? Well, I mean, they had much fewer voting rights than me okay. and my co-founder. Okay. <laughs> but they, you know, by law, they were shareholders. And so this was an open discussion with the team. So huh. we basically brought everyone into a room. And, and we have a, a, a bit of a distributed team. With uh, At the time, we had three people in Chicago, one person in North Carolina, and 10 people in San Francisco. And... Um, when it became apparent that the deal was going to close or might be able to close at the end of the week, um, we didn't know that until Monday or Tuesday of that week. And so one of our San Francisco people was on vacation. We asked them to like literally cut his vacation short and we paid to fly him back to San Francisco overnight. And to his, to his credit, he didn't complain. He just did it. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, we had to fly out the Chicago people, all three of them, on 24 hours notice, fly out the North Carolina person, because it was very crucial to us that we don't do this over the phone or Skype or anything. We wanted to get everyone in the room together because this was we built this business together, and, and if we were going to sell it, we were going to discuss it together. So um, we got everybody around our big lunch table in our main office, and uh, we uh, broke the news, busted out some champagne, and... <laughs> It was just silent as a tomb. No one had any clue how to react to this news. Is this good? Is this bad? Did Brad sell us down the river? Uh, you know, are we, are we actually going out of business? And this is one of those kind of fake acquisitions that we hear about on Twitter all the time. What does this mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we spent hours kind of talking through things. I told everybody the, the story of the deal negotiations and the structure of the deal and we met individually with each member of the team to tell them how much stock they were going to get, how much cash they were going to get, how it was going to be structured, the timeline, the personal timeline for them for how they were going to get money and assets out of the deal. Um, and you know, we'd stayed up all night the night before, my co-founder and I, putting this together. 
So, um, so it was a long day, really stressful day, but a fun day. Um, and, uh, and you know, over time as people started understanding the structure of this, then they got pretty excited. So you wrote an article in slate too, that kind of, at one point you described the negotiations between you and, and Miriam, um, was there, I mean, they, they wanted some very detailed information. What kind of advice would you give um, to a founder who wants to prepare for this? Um, yeah. Were there any gotchas? So what I would say is, so we're talking about due diligence, basically, and, and being, being ready for this kind of situation. The first thing I would say, just to preface what I'm about to say, is that um, for any of your listeners, if you go to Hacker News, which... You know, if you're not reading Hacker News every day, I don't know what you're doing. But if you go to Hacker News uh, and search for the discussion thread about my Slate article, <laughs> you'll okay. find a huge, super detailed discussion from a lot of really smart people about due diligence. And, and, and I chime in there, but there's people way smarter than me, uh, perhaps people who've been on this podcast, uh, weighing in on their thoughts on it. And wow. With with due dil- so that's one thing to check out for people interested in this. But you know the highlights from my point of view is that when you're thinking about due diligence, um, you want to be you want to have a certain level of organization and structure. You know you want to keep all your paperwork organized, and and that's your employment agreements, your stock agreements with your employees, any you know contracts you sign with outside partners or vendors. You want to keep all that stuff in one place, and ideally have digital copies of everything. But no matter what. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you just overlook and you're not really set on. And so, um, I, you know, I, I did a pretty good job keeping that stuff organized and it still took me weeks and weeks and weeks of, of time, you know, working from 8 a.m. to 2 a, or 8 p.m. to 2 a.m., just shuffling through paperwork. And, and, you know, Marin gave me a checklist of, I don't know, maybe 300 documents that I needed to have. And uh, it took a long time to track all that stuff down because you got to understand it's not enough to just have something signed. It also has to be dated and those dates have to make sense and they have to line up with, you know, the facts of the matter and, you know, it's messy. So you want to be, you want to have everything in one place, make sure you've got everything, but at the same time, you don't want to spend all your time optimizing for an outcome that won't come. Your main goal is to build your business. All, this, all the due diligence stuff will take care of itself so long as you've got everything in a box somewhere where you can find it. So okay. that's my main advice. Just keep everything in one place and be thoughtful about that. But I wouldn't stress out about it too much beyond that. So was there anything in particular um, that surprised you or something that you learned that was unexpected going through the entire experience? I would say this. I would say the most surprising thing was the the just the sheer raw stress of mm-hmm. of the situation because you think about acquisition and especially even acquisitions like this that let's be candid were very financially favorable to everyone on our team um, you know everyone's got a job our products still like there's nothing for us to complain about um, the process though from November through to you know the end of May when this was announced was incredibly stressful from a combination of me having to keep growing the business while leading basically a double life because I had to spend a lot of time negotiating the deal, um, doing due diligence on the deal. Um, you know, I, I gained a ton of weight. I wasn't sleeping hardly at all. I basically was sleeping in the office every night for the last six months or so of the company. 
Um, and it was, it was something where, you know, um, I, I wasn't really prepared for how painful that process would be. And had I known, you know, I don't, you know, dear listener, if you're hearing this and this is in your future, you can't really prepare for, for how difficult and stressful it's going to be. Um, but if you're doing it now and you're finding it difficult and stressful, uh, you're not alone and that's not unusual. I think that's just the nature of the process. Anytime big organizations come together like this, um, you know, we're bringing someone small. There's just so much legal that has to go into it and it all has to be done correctly, especially if it's a public company because all these books are, have to be reviewed and approved. Yeah. So, um, just the sheer volume of the work that, that went into it. I, there's no way I could have anticipated it and, and how hard it was going to be. Wow. Yeah. That's, um, amazing insight. Yeah, woe is me. I sold my company for millions of dollars. <laughs> it was a lot of work. <laughs> woe is me. Oh, so so poor me. Right. I understand. No, but um, it's it's a reality because you start out and this stuff is fun, you know, and you don't think about what it looks like when yeah. there's millions of dollars on the table and how it, how serious of a situation that can be. And it was so hard growing and maintaining our business during that time. It was so hard. During due diligence, there was a period of time when the folks at Marin all went on vacation or something like <laughs> that. I don't remember. And um, and it was just, you know, it was a real, it, there was like a, like a detente in the process. And I had a week when it, I could really just focus on perfect audience stuff. And, and that was just, a, it's a, it was so refreshing and restoring. Um, so that was very helpful. Post acquisition, what has changed? Great question. So, Perfect Audience, there's 14 of us at the time of the acquisition, and uh, it was you know very important to us while we talked with Marin that that they were looking to bring the whole team on to Marin in some capacity, mm. and they were totally on board with that. And so that was one of the many reasons why we went with them. We did have uh, options, um, but there were many reasons why why Marin was the right choice for us. Um, and so the whole team came over. And, and so today, in a lot of ways, not that much has changed. We still have engineering uh, and sales in San Francisco. All of our support team in Chicago has just moved over to Marin's Chicago team. Um, our remote guy in North Carolina is still working from home. Um, and so uh, a lot of the structural stuff is, is, is very similar to how it was before. Now, instead of working out of a uh, a weird condo in Soma. <laughs> We're right. working out of you know the Salesforce building in downtown San Francisco. Um, you know, and and our team is in one corner of a floor that has eighty engineers, uh, wow. which is very different. Um, but um, but we're all still in the same vicinity to each other, working away on things. Uh, it's it's not all that different day to day, and especially for the engineers, not not that much has changed functionally. Uh, on the business side, um, you know, we are now engaging with customers far beyond the scale and caliber of the customers that we had access to on our own. You know, Marin works with many of the greatest companies on the planet, companies like Macy's and Hotels.com. And figuring out how to bring retargeting to those companies in a way that takes advantage of the great search work that they're doing with Marin, you know, all the Google ad management and all the data that comes out of that is actually a pretty fun product challenge. Um, you know, we, we kind of look at Marin's search business as this huge data trove 
Um, and, and we're looking for all kinds of thoughtful and creative ways to build retargeting and display products that will take advantage of that because no one else has that. So, so that's something that we're spending a lot of time on, uh, but we're still you know, bringing on clients, growing the business. Uh, we're just also working with some bigger folks now, and we've got more resources behind us. A lot of people view acquisition as a, as a finish line, um, getting the company acquired or selling it. But this doesn't sound like a finish at all for you guys. It sounds like you're you know, continuing on as normal and you're excited about it. Sounds just like a level up, really. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of that might be because it's B2B. Yeah. Right? So that's something to think about. If you're, if you're B2C and you get acquired and your company hadn't really made that much progress, it kind of is a finish line because you're probably going to go work on other stuff uh, and uh, you know, maybe the team will stay together. But, um, but the product itself might not survive. You know, B2C really requires this massive scale. And if you get there, great. If you don't, well, get in line. Uh, on the B2B side, you know, we built a product that, that um, uh, you know, Marin wants to keep in circulation and they want to grow it and build the brand. And, and there's actually a bit of a precedent for that. I mean, look at an acquisition like Mailgun, which is another white combinator company that went to Rackspace. Uh, that was years ago, and you can still sign up for Mailgun. You can still go use it. There's a team running it. There's uh, a manager that manages it, um, and, and that's an ongoing concern. Look at Wufu, you know, similar case, a bit more consumery, but still B2B, uh, and they're still out there in the market after SurveyMonkey bought them, providing service and building the business. So um, you know, I think there's a bit of a precedent for these kind of SaaS B2B products where if they've got traction and they're providing value to the acquirer, uh, you know, there's no reason they can't stick around. Um, so where can we keep up with you and Perfect Audience online? Sure. So uh, I've got a Twitter account. You can, anyone can follow me on uh, Brad Flora on Twitter. Um, and, um, and then, you know, Perfect Audience, we've got a blog. We, we uh, are pushing out new product updates left and right. Um, now that we're kind of back to work, um, we've solved a lot of customer problems, uh, things that we had a meeting about a month ago, and we just went through the big uh, feature request list that is building in our uh, support queue. Yeah. And uh, we marked a ton of stuff, and we're just cranking through it. It's awesome. Good. So, well, we're uh, so glad you guys are still rolling. Uh-huh. Well, that's great to hear. You know, we are too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so, um, so, so, yeah, I mean, check out our blog. Check out our Twitter account. We're at Perfect Audience. Um, you know, moving ahead, building the business. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you haven't yet, pop open iTunes and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We have some really great ones lined up. And while you're there, leave us a review. We really appreciate each and every one of them. Stand back and watch. Devil's time out. Can't be time with no swatch. Watch who I am. The black Abraham. Zungo, zungo, zang, yellow man, Vietnam. Adding extra bars. I spar with little chores. Taking kingdoms from czars. Winning more wars than the moors. Now what's the deal, star? I seen the devil spar with the law. Mathematics. Was the key to set my whole race free You might debate we A refugee, no harm hurt me Dying thirsty from the struggle to my own hustle bubble On the level, always be the show The free ball right The righteous Asiatic Denver, Wild Satan, Rock Light Stupid lies, like the Molly Burgundy Molly back and see the fifth finale Clap and drop, we'll tell you, keep you locked in Power, always be the show The free ball 